Okay, I'll try that again. Good morning. Welcome to New Hope. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is, I'm sure, something that you all love to hear. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to get into a bunch of really cool stuff today. But first, I want us to think about something. I want us to think and imagine what it would be like to have a conversation with Jesus. A pretty simple idea. Um, you might close your eyes. You might uh, just imagine in your head what it would be like. What does he look like? Um, what's the tone of his skin? What's the sound of his voice? What does his hair look like? What does his beard look like? What clothes are he wearing? What clothes are he wearing? Where are you in this conversation? Are you on a hill somewhere? Are you in a field? Are you in a restaurant? Where are you? Uh, as you talk with him. Um, When he smiles at you, what feeling does that elicit? When he puts his arm around you and tells you that it's going to be okay, and that he's with you, what does that feel like? Um, There are good and bad ways that we come about that conversation, um, because on one hand, uh, art, music, um, ever going back to Sunday school, where we have pictures where we are actually drawing Jesus talking to his disciples, we're coloring it in, and we have those images in our head. Um, or uh, art, as you look around, there's several pictures of Jesus here in the windows and in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, um, in the windows. But also there's movies, there's TV shows, there's um, songs that talk about what it's like to have a conversation with Jesus. We are filled with the church with this language that helps us do that. And the reason being is because it's extremely important from a Christian point of view that um, if you're a Christian, we would seek to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, The idea is that God is not some distant, far-removed being that is judging us down here. No, Jesus came down to Tabernacle to be with us here in our midst That is what Christianity is about, and that's what we're trying to tap into when we have a conversation, a personal relationship with Christ. Um, The bad thing about that is that sometimes we might project our own images. We might project our own cultural expressions on what we think Jesus looks like. Um, So we we need to be cautious of that a little bit. But I think that when we do this, when we have this conversation, where we think about what it would be like to have a conversation with Christ... Uh, it helps us with some of the more difficult passages um, that we find specifically in the Gospels. Now, if I ask you to do the same thing with Paul, for me, if you're anything like me, that would be a lot more challenging. For me, it's a lot more difficult to try to sit down and think about what it would be like for me to have a conversation with the Apostle Paul, and when he laughed, and when he tar- put his arm around me and said everything was going to be okay, what I, like, wh- that, whoa, that doesn't seem quite as natural as me having a relationship with Jesus. And it's supposed to be that way. We're supposed to have a relationship with Jesus because Jesus is how we understand the Father. But Paul wrote a good bit of the New Testament. And we have a responsibility to try to wrap our heads around who this guy is. Um, So we're going to spend the next three months going through some pretty difficult passages. And we're starting with something right out of the gate 
that it's not an easy passage. And we hear Paul saying these difficult things. Maybe for you, I'd issue a special challenge that maybe during this season of the fall, maybe I need to understand, maybe I need to do a little bit of business with who is this Paul guy? You know, when he says these difficult things, who is it that's saying that? What's his history? What's his story? Um, Because evidently, God wants me to pay attention to him. Um, We've been in 1 Corinthians for the past, um, uh, since Easter. And we've gotten to chapter 5. And now chapter 5 is going to be kind of a hinge chapter. Or uh, it's going to kind of make a turn where we're going to start thinking about some different um, uh, different content than what we had before. And chapters 1 and 4, you might have noticed last week we included kind of a, a summary, a little blue piece of paper that you got last week, a, a summary of what chapters 1 and 4 are all about. It, it talked about um, how proud allegiance, chapters 1 and 4, talks about how proud allegiance to human leaders within the church rather than to Christ is divisive and destructive. It talked about how the crucified Christ is, paradoxically, the wisdom and power of God, and that the cross is the appearance of God and also the appearance of Christ. It talked about how possession of the Spirit and spiritual maturity consists not just in having or or displaying humanly valued indicators of social and spiritual status, but rather, rather than being lofty rather than that, the Christian life is called to be intimately connected to the cross. The mark of apostleship, then, and of ministry in general, is faithfulness to God's call and word and deed through conformity to that crucified Christ, which we've called uh, cruciformity before, um, and service to God's people. And God's servants are accountable to God for the quality of their labor. And then all of that circles back around to again saying, the church doesn't belong to human leaders. The church belongs to God. But that's interesting because two weeks ago, Steve Chastain spoke to us about that last section of 1 Corinthians 4. And as I was reading that, as I'm doing business with this language here in the end of chapter 4, I would have expected Paul to say, follow Christ. Christ is the one that you need to follow. You know, try not to pay attention to maybe human leaders or try to, you know, um, have that allegiance because you need to follow Christ. But interestingly, Paul doesn't say that. What does Paul say? He says, indeed, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I appeal to you then, be imitators of me. For this reason, I sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ Jesus. Wow. Well, that's interesting. If, God wants, if, if Paul wants me to focus on Christ and follow Christ, he's also saying he wants me, like he's being pretty personal there. This is why I wanted to begin with the idea of, wow, what it would be like to wrap our heads around who is Paul. Apparently, just because we are to avoid a proud allegiance to human leaders, doesn't it all mean that we're not supposed to follow them? This isn't a downplay on leadership roles within the church. This is an emphasis of it. Now more than ever, the church of Jesus Christ needs leaders with integrity. And even more importantly, 
This isn't a downplay on the role of the church itself. This is an emphasis of it. To be the church is to be God's covenant people. The church is charged with the stewardship of the gospel message that declares that Christ's kingdom work, it declares Christ's kingdom work of cosmic reconciliation. That's the stakes of the game. And that's why the church must be charged with giving itself over to the refiner's fire. Paul's final words at the end of this first section asks, what would you prefer? Am I to come to you with a stick or with love in the spirit of gentleness? It's with that question in our mind that now he's going to turn and begin chapter It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not even found among pagans. For a man is living with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Should you not rather have mourned so that he who has done this would have been removed from among you? For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus, on the man who has done such a thing. When you are assembled, and, in my, and when my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You're boasting? It's not a good thing. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you might be a new batch, as you really are unleavened. For our paschal lamb Christ has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and evil, but rather with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy or robbers and idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. But now, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother and sister who is sexually immoral or greedy or is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, or a robber. Don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those outside? Is it not those who are inside that you are to judge? God will judge those outside. So drive out the wicked person from among you. Wow. Complicated, weedy, difficult passage. So let's just say, hypothetical situation, I needed to lose weight. Hard for you to imagine. If I was going to make a plan, and let's say I needed to lose upwards of 70 pounds, um, there's a couple of different levels of choices that I could make. I could make soft choices. And I could say to myself, you know, I want to eat better. I want to be a little bit more of a healthier individual. Um, So I'm just going to make this rule, and I'm going to say that I could eat anything I want um, as long as I have a salad every day for lunch. Or I might go a little harder. Or I might say, you know what, the soft choices aren't really doing it. I need to up my game. And I need to say, you know what, I need to eliminate cheeseburgers and pizza and cheesesteaks and soda from my diet. Um, and 
I'll just do that during the work week. And on the weekend, I'll eat whatever I want. If that doesn't work, maybe I need to then upgrade to a more radical choice and say, you know what? I need to eliminate cheeseburgers and pizza and cheesesteaks and soda from my diet completely until such a time as I am able to exercise self-control over them. Brene Brown puts it this way. Daring to set boundaries is about having the courage to love ourselves even when we risk disappointing others. I know that sounds like a cat poster, but it gets to the basic truth of a personal dimension of discipline. If I expect to see change in behavior, character, knowledge, or ability, I must be willing to pick up those tools which will help me get there and put down those things which hinder me from achieving that goal. If we expect to find victory over negative things in life, whether they be weight loss or addiction, or triumph over positive goals like becoming a better employee, a better student, learning a new language, or mastering a musical instrument, then that means that I'm going to need to make choices which reflect not only my goals, but also the stakes of the game. I realize I'm saying all this to a remarkably disciplined congregation. I could look around this room, and I can see people who own businesses, know multiple languages, and have degrees upon degrees upon degrees. Many of you know trades like plumbing, IT, and landscaping. You've dived into the arts through music and design. Your your doctors, your lawyers, your teachers, your parents, your students. You know what it means to exercise discipline in order that you might become accomplished in your field. So when it comes to a text like this, where Paul is saying some pretty difficult things, some radical things, to the church at Corinth, it may help us to apply those same principles of personal discipline to the church. So maybe we can broaden Brene Brown's quote by saying, daring to set boundaries for our community is about having the courage to love the church, even when we risk disappointing others, because we know we're called to be God's set-apart covenant people, knowing the stakes of the game and making choices that reflect that truth. Like Israel... We are blessed to be a blessing. Blessed not to the exclusion of others, but rather to the benefit of others. And if we're going to be a benefit for others, we need the refiner's fire. We need discipline. Most of the time, that will look like living in community, helping each other grow um, as we do life together. That's why house churches, small groups, Bible studies are so important to the life of our church. We call out things in each other. Sometimes we even name each other's sins, and it takes humility to do that, to sit down with a brother or a sister and say, I see this in you, and I want to name it, and I want to help you name it, because I'd like to work through it together. Um, Not because I want to judge you, but because I love you. I've said it before, and I will say it again. Humility is the Christian superpower. The more we do business with our own depravity and live life in a community healthy enough to call out sin in each other, the more we're able to remove that log from our collective eye and see clearly to point out the splinter in another's. Purity doesn't lead to pride. Not true purity. Purity leads to love. 
And it's that basic principle that we need to understand to get our heads around what Paul is doing here with this complicated matter. And to do that, we need to first understand the grounds for this type of discipline and the particular thing that has Paul worked up. Most likely, when the text says a man is living with his father's wife, he means that he is engaging openly and unapologetically in a relationship, including a sexual relationship, with his stepmother. These days, such a situation might land you your own reality TV show. But in Paul's day, not only was this specifically prohibited in Torah, it was also against Roman law. Leviticus 18 has this long list of laws prohibiting every form of incest you could think of. It even makes special note to point out that it still counts even when you're only related in law. And Deuteronomy 22.30 says, A man shall not marry his father's wife, thereby violating his rights. The Institutes of Gaius from the middle of the second century says, Neither can I marry her who, was, who, who has aforetime been my mother-in-law or stepmother. And Cicero, from 1st century B.C., writes, And so mother-in-law marries son-in-law, with none to bless, none to sanction the union, and amid naught but general foreboding, the madness of passion broke through and laid low every obstacle, lust triumphed over modesty, wantonness over scruple, and madness over sense. Cicero liked to lay it on thick. Because the woman isn't mentioned more than she is, in all likelihood she wasn't a part of the Corinthian church. And it's also possible that, stepmother, um, that the stepmother was actually closer in age uh, to the son, closer to the son's age than the father. Maybe the father's dead. Maybe he had divorced the woman. Maybe the son had, div- uh, had a relationship with the woman before the father took her as his wife. We have no way of knowing. But it doesn't matter. Because what we do know is that Paul is horrified by the situation any way you slice it. We're going to spend the next few months talking about human sexuality. And it's a topic which has not only divided the nation, it's divided the church. And I'm convinced that we need to hear it because I'm convinced that I need to hear it. This text is an example of Scripture telling us that there are boundaries to godly expression of our sexuality, and just because something feels right at the time doesn't make it appropriate behavior. But we are also a people defined by sacrificial love and self and respect and dignity for all created life. And we must take that love into our uh, conversations regarding human sexuality if we are to make choices which reflect the discipline of a community with the kind of call that we have. This applies first to our knowing what a godly context for for sexuality is. It requires us talking about that married people need to act like they're married and unmarried people need to stop acting like they're married. But don't think that sexual immorality alone is what has Paul worked up here. Two other really important things are going on. Number one, I'm using the NRSV. And the word translated pagans by this and the NIV, I believe, is the word that's usually used to refer to Gentiles. And this might actually give us a clue at what Paul thought of Corinthian converts to Christianity, that they're Gentiles no more. 
They are part of a covenant community, and they need to start acting like it. So Paul, I mean, this is really cool. Paul, a Jew, is telling a Gentile-loaded church in the Greco-Roman province of Corinth that their behavior should reflect their new status as God's covenant people. It's like the opposite of a backhanded compliment. It's like a front-handed insult. That being said, number two, Paul is furious over the fact that the church in Corinth seems for some reason to have gone in the completely opposite direction from naming the sin that they're boasting about. They're arrogant. They're puffed up. They're inflated with pride. This might suggest that the man in question enjoys some kind of social status in the community, or worse, they might actually be using this opportunity to boast about this guy's sexual freedom in Christ. Regardless, Paul wants none of it. And he makes it clear that in this particular instance, the right thing for them to do would be to forcibly remove this man from the community. He says, when you are assembled and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, You are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh and that his spirit might be saved so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. I mean, that is one heck of a loaded sentence. First of all, Paul seems to be implying that he will somehow be spiritually present with them during this disciplinary action. And if that wasn't mysterious enough, he then doesn't just say that the Corinthians should show this guy the door until he repents. Um, of his ways, he wants the church to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The passage might bring to mind something that, that Jesus said in Matthew 18. If, you, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Ultimately, Paul tells us, the goal of discipline will be for his benefit, so that the man's spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. And that ultimate goal might help us uh, with the language that Paul uses here and in the rest of the chapter. He again reminds them, that their boasting is not a good thing. And then he says that a little yeast, or, or leaven, leavens the whole batch of dough. So they are to clean out this old yeast, this yeast of, of malice and evil, and then just be unleaded, unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Simple, genuine, unpretentious bread. For Paul tells us our Paschal lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Now, here we're in the weeds. So, let's tally this up. We've got incest. We've got excommunication. We've got mysterious spiritual presence. We've got handing people over to Satan. We've got the destruction of the flesh, the day of the Lord, unpretentious bread, and the Paschal Lamb. Let's see if we can make sense of this by actually considering the narrative of the Passover itself. If the Corinthian Gentiles were excited about getting into the story of Israel, they're about to drink from the fire hose. In the book of Exodus, during the enslavement of the Hebrew people by the Egyptians, God decided to deliver one final plague to the captors so that Pharaoh would let Israel go. He told each family to slaughter a lamb without blemish and smear their doorposts with the blood of the lamb. 
Then they were to stay in their houses and eat a meal of the roasted lamb along with unleavened bread. When the Lord's plague passed through the streets of Egypt, killing the firstborn humans and animals, God would see the blood on the doorposts of the Hebrew families and pass over their houses. Paul is using this story to point out that Christ is the once-for-all Passover lamb, not just for Israel, but for the redeemed humanity, better known as the church, whose doorposts have been smeared by the blood of the lamb, better known as Jesus. By placing the offending man outside the realm of the church community, he is then being exposed to the destructive, Satan-led powers of this world. And when Paul mentions flesh... He's not talking about the guy's body. He's talking about the rebellious human nature that is opposed to God. Therefore, expelling the man from the community of faith would hopefully put to death these fleshly passions and desires and ultimately work towards his repentance and salvation. All of this is the responsibility of the church, not only because of the church's duty to corporate discipline, but also because the church has a responsibility to be as healthy as they can be for the purposes of their calling. Thus, they are to remove that old, dirty yeast of malice and evil from among them and remain unleavened bread. So then Paul is going to ask again, or I'll ask for Paul again, What would you prefer? Am I to come at you with a stick or with the love and spirit of gentleness? Gentleness. Gentleness. I'll I'll, I'll take gentleness, Paul. Great. Great, Paul says. I'm glad you said that because that means that we have a responsibility to be the church. It It means that we have a responsibility to live in transparent community. It means that we need accountability partners. It means that we need to study the scriptures. It means that we need to maybe consider who is this guy, Paul, anyway? Like, what is he trying to say? What is his larger goal here? Um, It means that we need to live in community. And most importantly, it means we need to go back to that personal relationship with Christ. It means that Jesus alone is going to talk with us and point out the things which stand apart from God's holiness and say, we're going to get through this, through this together because I died on a cross for your sins. That's what this is all about. And if we embrace that, if we lay our sins and our shortcomings, our failures, in our successes, if we lay our entire lives at the foot of his cross, then we're going to experience the gentleness of Christ. But... If we refuse, if we remain stubborn and ignorant or arrogant, prideful, then there may come a day where God needs to use the stick. And with that, we need humility. Humility.